0: turning back in our Bibles to that first chapter which we read, Amos chapter 1 through the third verse of chapter 2, we'll be looking at this judgment against the nations. I'll simply read verse 2 of chapter 1, And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the tops of Carmel shall wither. Well, as we make our way through this series on the minor prophets, we come to the next book, the book of Amos, a book likely neglected by many pulpits, a book likely neglected in many private and family worship, a book that makes us uncomfortable and yet a book that is desperately needed to refresh your memory or to help those who were not here last week. Amos is coming in the days of Jeroboam. Remarkable prosperity in the northern kingdom. Everything outwardly was going great. And he comes declaring God's judgment. He comes declaring the certainty of God's judgment, the irrevocability of God's judgment. He comes warning uh, those in the northern kingdom and exhorting them to go to the south. And he comes with a promise that in the last days, the tabernacle of David will be erected and the, uh, the remnant of Edom will be brought in. But that only happens the last five verses. Virtually everything else up, up to that point is judgment, is God's righteousness, his justice, his holiness, his anger against sin. And this book is a book directed to Israel. But how does he begin? Amos is here. He's roaring from Zion. He has a message for Israel. And he begins by looking at the nations all around Israel. He begins by looking at everyone except Israel. And by doing so, he tells his people And he tells every subsequent generation, us included, something about ourselves and also something about God. Now, prophecies to the nations, children, when I say the nations, I mean essentially everyone except for Israel, is not uncommon. In fact, virtually every prophet has something to say to the nations. And some of them have quite a lot to say to the nations, Isaiah, chapter 13 through 23, one nation after another, uh, arraigned and judged and decimated. Jeremiah, chapter 46 through 52. Ezekiel, 26 through 32. Obadiah, the whole thing is directed to Edom. And so it's not uncommon. And one of the most basic principles we take from this is that though God is particularly concerned with His people, with His church, with us, and though providence, which uh, works together all things for good, especially toward those who love God and are called according to His purpose, that everything works to a point, the church itself is the particular uh, benefactor of God's providence and His works in the world. That is not to say... That God is unconcerned, as it were, or ignorant, or not provoked by the sins of the nations. Because though he is God of the church, he's also God of the world. He's God of all. Amos says that the Lord will roar from Zion. The Lord is pictured as a lion roaring, and it's an image that comes up a few times in Amos. If you know a little bit about lions, you know that they're silent hunters. It's actually the female lions that do most of their hunting at night in the cover of darkness with great silence. If a lion was to roar, it would alert the prey and cause them to run away. When does a lion roar? When he's got his prey, when it's in the den. When it's all over. So by saying the Lord is roaring from Zion. He's saying to all the nations. It's as good as done. You're in my den. And it's over. Let us hear what God. The roaring lion says. To the nations. Just a few notes. The geographic structure of this. If you're looking at Israel. It goes from Syria. It then goes to Philistia. It then goes up to Tyre. It then goes down to Edom, Ammon, Moab. It's circling Israel. But it's also going from pagan nations, Syria, Philistia, Tyre, to nations with a connection to Abraham Uh, Edom, Moab, and uh, Edom, Moab, and. Anyway. Do, 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 do. Ammon. Even, modem, and Ammon. So he's getting closer and closer. He always begins with for three transgressions and for four, which is a poetic expression describing the fullness of sin. It's over. Your, your, your cup is up. Three plus four is seven. That's a number of completion in the Bible. You have the same kinds of expressions in Proverbs six transgressions. The Lord hates seven, are an abomination unto him. There's an accusation, there's a punishment, and there's a seal. Thus says the Lord. Now we're going to look at each of these individually. So first of all, we have judgment on Damascus. Beginning there in verse 3. For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they thresh Gilead with threshing instruments of iron, But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. And I will break also the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon. And him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden and the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto Kerr, saith the Lord. Syria, a constant and regular enemy of Israel. You can read an entire uh, chapter about Ahab's wars with Ben-Hadad in 1 Kings chapter 20. Elisha, that great prophet that was given uh, a greater measure of the spirit than Elijah, what is the last thing he says before he dies? He tells the king of Israel to smite the arrows on the ground. He smote it three times. He said you should have smote it seven times. Then you would have destroyed Syria all the way. But you're only going to do it partially. Next words. Then Elisha dies. That's the last thing Elisha says. What is their crime? Well, their crime is cruelty. It says that they were threshing Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. not farming equipment. This is being used upon people. So threshing instruments, which toil the to ground, poke holes in the ground. The image there is that that is being run over people's back. You have some historical references to this. I'm just going to go through a couple in the book of Kings, Second Kings chapter 8 and verse 12. Elisha. Elijah is sent. Elisha, excuse me, is sent to anoint Hazael, king of Syria. And then he looks and he starts weeping. And he says, why are you weeping? And the man of God says, I know the evil that you will do unto the children of Israel. You'll set fire upon their young men, dash their children, and rip up their women with child." Read ahead, Second Kings chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. The Lord began to cut Israel short, and Hazael smote them. And all the coast thereof, notice this, from Jordan eastward, and all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Rumanites and the Manassites from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, even Gilead and Bashan. So Gilead was the place in which these atrocities occur. There is a reference to it in the Bible. If you go just a little bit farther ahead, and I know this is a lot of textual references here, Second Kings 13.7. It speaks also of cruelty that Syria didn't leave any footmen, but destroyed them and made them like the dust of threshing. So you put these things together, you have cruelty against the people of Israel, particularly in that region of Gilead on the east side of Jordan. They treated people like they didn't matter. They perhaps tortured them. They uh, murdered them with Brutality. They were cruel. And so what does God say he's going to do? Well, he said he's going to send fire into his house. Fire, an image of judgment. He said he's going to take the king and punish him specifically. Because he says that he's going to take the scepter from the house of Eden. And he's going to take Syria itself and send them into captivity even unto Kerr. So the, the whole nation is going to be punished for sins that were perpetrated against Israel. One last textual reference on this is 2 Kings verse sixteen, chapter 16 and verse 9. Here Assyria comes to Syria. Those are two different nations, so Assyria and Syria. And the king of Assyria came and went against Damascus and took it, and carried the people of captive to Ker. God's prophecy was fulfilled. God sent another wicked king to pick up those people, drive them back to Ker. Judgment upon Damascus. Well, Amos moves from Damascus to Philistia. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza. And for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them to Edom. But I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof and cut off the inhabitant of Ashdod and the that holds it, the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith the Lord. It doesn't say Philistines anywhere, but it mentions four out of their five major city states, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and um, uh, missing one, Ekron. The only one that's missing is Goth. So he mentions the cities of Philistines. And you know from reading your Bible that the Philistines were a constant enemy of God's people, especially in the Judges and especially uh, through David. Goliath was a what? He was a Philistine. Who was it that David was constantly smiting but the Philistines? Who was it that Saul was so often going against? It was the Philistines. Uh, There's many things that the Philistines had. They were a warfaring people. When God could have brought the people out, when God brought the people out of Egypt, he said, I'm not going to send them through Philistia, because I don't want them to be discouraged by war. Uh, We read in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 19 that Uh, Philistia had a monopoly on iron in the area, which in the ancient times, in terms of warfare, that's a pretty significant advantage. Now, what did they do? What did this ancient rival nation do? They participated in human trafficking. It says that they took the whole captivity captive, and they sent them to Edom. The idea here is taking people... Prisoners and selling them. And when it says the whole captivity, we're not to understand this as prisoners of war, involved in a, in a real conflict, but all kinds of people. Men that are innocent. Women. Perhaps children. And selling them to a country that hates Israel, namely, Edom. We read also... ...of this happening in 2 Chronicles... ...chapter 21... ...in verse 16 and 17... ...where there's been a raid... ...on uh, the people of Israel and Edom... ...and Philistia are gathering together... ...and they're rejoicing in the mutual destruction. So that comes in 2 Chronicles 21... ...verse 16 and 17... The Lord stirred up against Jehoram, the spirit of the Philistines, and the Arabians that were near Ethiopia. And they came into Judah and break into it and carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house, his sons also, and his wives, and them that, were, uh, that was never a son left him, save Jehoahaz, the son of his sons. So they came and took these people and gave them to eat him. Now, what's the sentence? What does God say He's going to do? Well, He's going to once again send a fire upon their wall. That's an image of removing the protection of a nation. But unlike, uh, unlike the judgment of Damascus, God's not going to leave anything. He said He's going to cut off not just the nation. He's going to cut off the whole remnant. And the remnant of the Philistines shall perish saith the Lord. Nothing left. All the way down to the remnant. Philistine itself shall be completely removed, completely destroyed in the wrath of God. Nothing left. There's still a Damascus. There's still Syrians. Where are the Philistines? Blotted out from history in God's fury for their sin, for three transgressions, and for four. Moving up to Tyre in the next session for three transgressions of Tyrus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they delivered the whole captivity captive to Edom and remember not the brotherly covenant, but I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Now we come to Tyre and we come to a nation that unlike Damascus and unlike Philistia has not always been hostile to Israel. In fact, they weren't necessarily a, a border state. They were kind of up, uh, up, up the sea just a little bit. They were known for their riches and their trade and their pride. They actually get a lot of attention in prophetic literature. God said he's going to bring them out down because they thought that through the abundance of their wealth, through the abundance of their trade partners, that they were impregnable, secure, and safe. And God says, I'll bring them down. Now, what's their sin? Treachery. They forgot the brotherly covenant. If you remember, when David was building his house, and when Solomon came after it, he received wood from Hiram, the king of Tyre. And there's a letter going back and forth between them. They were as one. But Tyre betrayed this mutual agreement when they sent the whole captivity into Edom. Now what's going on here? Well, Tyre, known for trading, uh, the place where goods and services went through, in all likelihood, is receiving the slaves from Philistia, Trading with Philistia and then using those slaves, using those human trafficking to trade with Edom. They're getting wealthy on human goods. You even have images of it in Joel chapter 3 verse 6. Six, The children of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have ye sold to the Grecians that you might remove them far from their border. Also Ezekiel chapter 27 and verse 13, we have these words, that Javan, Tubal, and Mesek, they were thy merchants. This is Speaking of Tyre. And they traded persons of men and vessels of brass in thy market. Men and brass put on the same level there. Trading men as you're trading brass. And so sentence, fire on the wall, removal of protection, cutting off the uh, devouring the palaces, a complete ruin, which, by the way, was accomplished by Alexander the Great. Tyre was removed. God used that great, furious kingdom like a leopard to destroy Tyrus. Now, these three nations, Damascus, Philistia, and Tyre, thoroughly pagan. Thoroughly pagan. They're doing what pagans are supposed to do, not supposed to do, but what we expect them to do. As we move closer, we get to people, we get to nations, who have some knowledge, some first-hand knowledge of God through their association with Abraham. And the first is Edom, the descendants of Esau, who was called Edom after trading his birthright. Now, uh, Edom and Israel have been at wars and mutual hatred between them, But God actually instructs the people of Israel to be mindful of Edom as they're coming out. Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 4, God says, When you pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Sire, they shall be afraid of you. Take good heed yourselves, therefore. Do not meddle with them. For I will not give you their land, no, not so much as a foot, because I've given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. God gave a particular thing to Esau, to Edom. He called for peaceful relationships between them, but Edom hated Israel, just like his father. Their crime was hatred. Their crime was Hatred, because for three transgressions and for four, he did pursue his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. There is a lack of mercy. His anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. No mercy, no compassion, but joy in the murder of innocence. In Obadiah, which is directed to Esau, You shouldn't have looked on your brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. They're rejoicing in the murder of Israelites. Neither should you have spoken proudly. You shouldn't have entered into his gates in the day of their calamity. You shouldn't have looked on their affliction in the day of calamity, nor laid your hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Nor should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those that did escape. There are some that are getting through in this temporary sack of Jerusalem, and they are blocking them, cutting them off that they would be delivered to the sword. Can you imagine the inhumanity? A city is sacked, some people are fleeing, and in cruel hatred, lack of compassion, no mercy, no pity, they are stopped and given up for the slaughter. Well, God's going to send a a fire into Timon and into Basra. A fire which was kindled and a fire which was felt through Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. Finally, the Maccabees destroying Edom. There is no Edom any longer. There is no nation. God's judgment pronounced and sealed and executed. We move now to the fifth of six nations, Ammon. Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of the children of Ammon and for four. I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Listen, because they have ripped open the woman with the child of Gilead that they might enlarge their border. But I will kinder a fire in the house of Rabbah and it shall devour the palaces thereof with shouting in the day of battle and tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into captivity He and his princes together saith the Lord. Now, Ammon, a child of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his second daughter. In Genesis chapter 19, that's who this kingdom is. They had a little piece of land, a piece of land that God gave to them. Also, in that same chapter of Deuteronomy chapter 2, and this time, verse 19 God says through Moses, When you come nigh to the children of Ammon, do not distress them, do not meddle them, for I will not give thee the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I've given it to Lot for a possession. They were also cursed for their cooperation with Moab and hiring Balaam to curse Israel. But what is their crime? Genocide. They ripped open the mother with her children. They killed mother and unborn baby because they were on an expansion campaign, not content with a piece of land that was given them by God as an inheritance for Lot. They wanted more land. They wanted to expand their territory. They wanted to increase their power. And in the the process of that, they were met with people who lived in the land of Gilead, and they ripped open the woman with child. This is not a just war. This is a murderous campaign built upon selfishness and greed. That's what they did. God is going to kindle a fire in their house. And notice he's the one that's especially doing it. He did kindle a fire. He did light it. And in Jeremiah chapter 49 and verse 2, with respect to the children of Ammon and that nation, God says, The days come that I will cause an alarm of war to be heard in Rabbah of the Ammonites, and it shall be a desolate heap, and her daughters shall be burned with fire. Then shall Israel be heir to them that were his heirs, saith the Lord. God is going to cause a fire to burn their daughters. Does anyone have a problem with that in terms of the theology of God? That he would send that kind of destruction and take what was theirs and give it unto Israel. Last nation, Moab. For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. But I'll send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Cariath. And Moab shall die with tumult and with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and I will slay all the princes thereof. With him saith the Lord. Moab, once again, given a piece of land. This is the product of the relationship between Lot and his first daughter. This is the same Moab that hired Balaam to curse Israel and therefore came under the judgment of God. But you read what they did here, and you think, well, when compared to ripping open women with child or selling people into captivity, this one isn't so bad. They took the king of Moab, an ungodly king to be sure, and they burned his body and his bones into life. Now, children, what's so bad about that? I mean, he's already dead. He can't be more dead. This is a desecration of the body. This is a humiliation of the same body that God carefully knit together in his mother's womb. That our bodies are gifts from the Lord, they're to be sanctified. We know that there's something wrong with this when someone is killed. And for example, James Guthrie, whose head was put on a stake outside St. Edinburgh's Castle for years upon end. Why would they do that? It's an intimidation tactic. You see what happens when you stand against us? We will make your burned, desecrated body a memorial. It's terrorism. It's designed to provoke fear and intimidation. And it's taking something that's precious to God and disrespecting it. What is God going to do to Moab? He's going to send fire. They're going to die with shouting, with tumult, and with a trumpet. Their nation will come to a violent end. Zephaniah prophesies of the annihilation of this people there you have it, six nations, six judgments. God, the king of the nations, announces a judgment perfectly curtailed to each one. Now, a few applications from this principle. Now, the first one is simply this. Mankind has not changed. We're tempted to think that things are especially bad in our day. And there's a degree to which that's true in the sense that in this country there were brighter and more prosperous and more spiritually profitable times. But the reality is this, is that sin remains in our hearts. That the problem of humanity isn't a problem of nurture, but it's a problem of nature. It comes from Within. Consider the crimes here mentioned inhumanity, slaughter, cruelty, genocide, desecration, slave trading, selling men like you sell brass, who sells them to Edom, whose king is burned by Moab. It's awful. It's horrific. But this is the human heart. This isn't the heart of them that is out there. This is the heart of you apart from divine restraint or divine grace. I remember Jeff Kingswood. He preached a sermon on total depravity. And he described a uh, a military man who gave a speech uh, uh, about of something, I forget exactly what the context was, but this man had an up-close personal view to genocide which took place in Uganda, a race-based murder of men, women, and children because their skin was darker than other people's skin. And he describes it, and he says, we are better than that. And Jeff Kingswood, hearing that speech, waited for him after the end of his talk, found him and talked to them and said, what makes you say we're better than that? That sounds to me like wishful thinking. You are a man who has seen the debauchery of the human heart up close. You know that we're not better than that. The truth of the matter is we are worse than that. We are far, far worse than that. This is who we are. This is what we do. The list and catalog of sins is not an exception, but it's normative throughout the course of human history. Even a casual acquaintance with history will vindicate me on that score. Now, what leads to such atrocities? In short... Rebellion against God and idolatry. These nations, these pagan nations, are unable to ascend to a higher plane of morality than the worthless sticks and stones and things they have created with their own hands. Their gods are gods of ungodliness, their gods are gods of human creation and they who serve them shall become like them. Mankind hasn't changed. You haven't changed. The only reason that we are restrained from this is by the grace of God. And in particular, children, those of you who do not run astray with ungodly uh, colleagues or friends, you ought not to think that there's something In you that is better. But all praise, honor, and glory must be directed Godward. So the first application is, man hasn't changed. The problem of sin remains. The second application is this. God also has not changed. Notice, first of all, that God addresses all these nations from Zion... There's an important distinction. All these nations have their gods. You've got gods that rule over a region. You have some nations where you've got God of the sea and a God of the sky and a God of fertility and all the rest. But God, our God, speaks from Zion and he has an interest in all of these other nations because he is the one true and living God before whom all stand. And as he's speaking to these pagan nations, he does not say, for three transgressions and for four, Elohim, God. But he says, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, his covenantal name. I am that I am. He addresses these nations as the Lord He is great in Zion. He is unlike them. The world is Jehovah's and all that it contains, including these nations. And as he goes one by one through the list, two things come together. Number one, his perfect knowledge of all their doings. He remembers what Philistia has done. He knows about the burning of the kingdom of 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 the king of Edom. He sees uh, Ammon ripping up women with their children. He sees their cruelty. And though they might think that God hasn't seen it. That they've gotten away with it. As he sends his prophet to enumerate their sins. The clear declaration is. You haven't gotten it by me. I saw it. I know about it. I've seen you. He who formed the eye, shall he not see? And he who formed the ear, shall he not hear? It may have escaped the notice of men. It may not have been met with a just trial in this world. But God saw. God knows. He knows everything. Whether it comes to the sins of nations, whether it comes to sins in private whether it comes to sins in families. Second of all, his righteousness. That with each uh, crime, there is an appropriate sentence. He's not capricious. He's not arbitrary. He sees and he knows. And he punishes them precisely because they should have known better. Now, God didn't send the Bible over there. The Bible was in Israel. He didn't put a temple in Ammon. Nor did He cause His name to dwell in Tyrus. But He declared Himself to the things which He has made. He gave each and every one of those people a conscience. They had the light of nature. And they sinned against it. That the light of nature, though it will not be saving, is enough to leave all men inexcusable. We're at the rally on Friday. And among the things that were said was simply this. Those of you who are out here parading around and celebrating debauchery, you don't even need a Bible to know that this is sinful. The common testimony of humanity, a brief look at the man and the woman and God's creation will tell you That this is wicked. And no one needs a Bible to know that ripping women open with their children is horrible. No one needs a Bible to know that the intimidation tactic of desecrating a dead body is wicked. God sends His judgment upon them. Now, man hasn't changed, God hasn't changed. Who are we to think that God shall deal any differently with our nation? You began putting these things together, and the United States stands condemned. We have three transgressions and four. God has seen. God knows. We rip women open with child voluntarily in abortion clinics. Our border expansions have not always been just. That is a fact. The United States, the world police, did not become so simply by defending itself against foreign invaders. We ally with cruel dictators like Tyrus. You think God doesn't know that our strongest, most consistent, most powerful ally in the Middle East is Saudi Arabia? Because it benefits us to have a strong regime to get their oil and to create stability in the nation despite the fact that they kill journalists or wage war in other places? Do you think God doesn't know that human trafficking is a huge industry in these United States? Do you think God doesn't know that the pornography industry is wed together with human trafficking. Among the other reasons, if any of you are struggling with that, that you should put that sin to death is its connection to human trafficking. It is a wicked, horrible sin employed by them, uploaded by various partners and all the rest. The king of Edom... Was burnt to lime. His body was desecrated. Do we not desecrate bodies through regular, unnecessary cremation? Or twisting, contorting, and defiling the very bodies and organs which God gave to us? And is it not obvious that God has sent a fire upon our walls? That our palaces are being consumed. That they're crumbling down. That our society is increasingly violent, cruel, and unclean. And why? Because we have forsaken him. Because we've turned away from the one true and living God to serve the gods of convenience The gods of desire, the gods of tyranny, the gods of greed and of consumerism, the gods of feminism and sodomy. We stand condemned for three transgressions and for four. And the Lord will not turn away the punishment thereof. It's increasing and it's coming and you see it if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. This is why Amos isn't popular. Where is the United States in the book of Amos? If I were to give it one nation, I would give it Tyrus. Exalted up to heaven with our riches, thought to be impregnable, the great tradesman of all the earth. And God says, from there, I will bring it down. Trading in human traffic to enlarge our pocketbook. Now, God's going to turn his attention to Israel in the next few verses. He's going to go to Judah first and Israel. But he begins by speaking to pagan rival nations. The next time he speaks of them is going to be at the very end of the book. Chapter 9 and verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 11. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the heathen, which are called by my name. The next time the Gentiles are mentioned, it's a promise of the gospel that when God raises up the tabernacle of, the day, of David, some of them will be saved. Now, once you to understand this correctly, there's no hope for Edom. There's no hope for Tyrus. Ammon will be destroyed with shouting and tumult and a trumpet. Philistines, their remnant wiped out. There's no hope for the nation. But there is hope for the individual. There is hope for that member of Tyrus who sees the wickedness of his own heart, the rebellion of his nation. And the exaltation of the tabernacle of David, which has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and has been exalted. And who places his hope and his trust there, who forsakes father, mother, sister, brother, and lands for the sake of the gospel. The Edomite, that great enemy of God who it is promised shall be made willing in the day of Christ's power. Apart from a remarkable outpouring of the Spirit and a huge repentance cutting down to the very foundations, there really is no hope for this nation on our present course. It's got to be something new. But, friends, there is hope for the individual. And there is hope for you. And there is the promise that God will receive you. We were some of it. God heard my prayer, He attended to my groaning, He heard my cry. And by God's grace, we ought to be those who are mourning over the sins of our nation, praying for God's blessing. Praying for the outpouring of the Spirit and also rejoicing if it pleases Him to make us go in the way of Tyre and of Philistia and all the rest. Because our ultimate loyalty is with God and we want things good here. We want God's blessing and we want His strength, but we want it in His way. We want it on His terms. And the great promise of the gospel is simply that he receives and makes all things new. So, Amos, not a popular book, but a needed book. Because we need to see our nation through the lens of God's eyes. And these first six rival nations, which uh, result in their judgment and demise, help us know a little bit about where we are. Well, may the Lord bless these words to us. Let's stand for prayer.